You're listening to Tabletop Arcanum, a podcast dedicated to learning and exploring the hobby of tabletop gaming. Your hosts are Justin Taylor and Richard Geese, so sit back and relax as we talk, discuss, and joke our way through the hobby we love so much. And welcome to Tabletop Arcanum. I'm Justin. Can I start talking again, Justin? It's been like a year. I know, but that's why we put you in the timeout corner, Ricky. I promise not to say offensive things to different people ever again. Well, it was more, you know, like the Coronas. But oh, yeah, offense. I will promise not to offend Corona ever again. There we go. Welcome back, sir. Yeah, it's been uh, it's been a while. I've been hiding in the background doing all the. Fun editing stuff, but of course, here we are, 100 episodes. 100 episodes, so if you're listening to this, thank you very much for uh, either joining the adventures that Tabletop Arcanum is, or if you've been here since episode one, wow, feels like it's been uh, a long time. Honestly, with the doing one a week now, it, it definitely accelerated us to 100 faster than we initially planned, but that's okay. Yeah, yeah. In honor of the 100th episode, I wanted to record and talk to not only myself and not just the blank void that I, I live in my basement, but also bring in the other two members of the Arkham Horror team that I was part of that won the championship at Arkham Knights. So the three of us tear apart and discuss all of Arkham Horror 2nd Edition, which is one the game we were challenged against and be one of our more favorite games of all time. So without further ado... First, and I'd like to welcome both Ken and Tony back to Tabletop Arcanum here. You both have been on the show prior, but this is the first time you're both on the same episode together. Why don't we remind everybody who you are and why you're here? All right, I guess I'll go first. Uh, hi, I'm Tony uh, Crisco, uh, a friend of Justin here. We we do a lot of gaming together. Um, I do listen to the show as well because uh, it's always interesting to see the opinions that he's uh, dropping for, for games I'm interested in. And once the pandemic is over, I'm going to go over and play all those games that he's been uh, reviewing. So I'm looking forward to that. But um, yeah, that's uh, last time I guess you guys have heard from me is when we did the Gamma episode. If you guys listened to that, um, we had discussed uh, our visit to Gamma and uh, kind of some of our takeaways from there. So looking forward to uh, joining the show once more. So. Perfect. And Ken. I am Ken, a uh, longtime friend of Justin, longtime uh, tabletop RPG player with Justin. Last time I was on was when we were uh, doing the preview uh, for Stargate, the tabletop RPG. So we got a chance to play that. I also am a listener of the show, and there are several board games that Justin has uh, reviewed in the last couple of months that have piqued my interest. So once everybody's fully vaccinated, I look forward to uh, getting together at the table with Justin and Tony to get some of those board games hashed out and uh, see what kind of damage we can do to those in the same vein that we've done some serious damage to the uh, to the game that brings us here today. Excellent. So directly I bring the two of you onto this particular episode because not only it's a landmark episode, but we're reviewing one of my favorite games of all time and talk about the pros and cons of Arkham Horror, the second edition, and specifically brought both Ken and Tony in because... The three of us are the last remaining champions of the Arkham Horror 2nd Edition League from Fantasy Flight Games. Random humble brag? (laughs) No, it's just a straight brag. Um, (laughs) We're the champions, and, you know, 
Well, we, we earned it. Yeah, regardless, like it's not like you can just walk into the manufacturer of any board game, win their league that they set up, and then get presented two years in a row with plaques to symbolize your dominance in their board game. So, you know, straight brag from both of us. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed. It's been a long time. We actually found Arkham Horror pretty much back in 20, uh, 2005 when it first dropped, because um, at that time I was working at a board game store. And it was, ah, this is a weird game. Let me buy this and go home. Uh, employee discount aside, uh, it was a, like, this seems interesting. So my first impressions of Arkham Horror 2nd Edition was, this is a big game that can support eight players, looks really cool, has monsters and the Cthulhu stuff on it. Let's give it a go. I had played some Fantasy Flight games at that point, but this is probably one of the earliest returns to hobbyist gaming for me was when I was working there because I was primarily, like Ken said, an RPG player, so I was buying uh, Dungeons & Dragons, Vampire, White Wolf products, all that stuff, and we sold board games and started getting to the hobby board gaming again uh, at that point in 2005. So that's where I kind of remember Arkham Horror is being like this, oh, what's this thing, and taking it home and then introducing all of my friends to this insanity that uh, I've played for many, 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 many years to come. We'll kick it over in the same order. Tony, what were your first impressions of the game? What do you remember your earliest memories of Arkham Horror? Prior to Arkham Horror, um, you know, I had started with uh, the board game wave, you know, your your Settlers of Catan, uh, Puerto Rico, things like that. And uh, when I saw this one come out, it had the Cthulhu Mythos, which is something I was a fan of and was familiar with from the RPG world. It had uh, a cooperative uh, format, which was uh, definitely something we did not have in any of our games. So uh, when I saw it on the shelf, I picked it up and we played it and we absolutely loved it. And, you know, that's uh, that's something that sort of uh, caught our caught my eye and and so since then I, I continued to pick up all the different versions of it the component quality uh for fantasy flight was just through the roof compared to some of their competitors so it was just something that that i naturally gravitated towards their games anyway so uh that was just uh, that was uh, the cherry on top as it were so but yeah enjoyed playing it um i enjoyed the narratives that would come out of it definitely um a game that people play differently um so different groups definitely took it uh in different directions but uh, i did really enjoy the way we played it which was reading our character descriptions kind of getting into the flow and then trying to uh role play while still trying to play optimally of course but <laughs> uh but you know we, we put in explanations as to why the uh the local politician was going to pick up a shotgun and shoot a horror in the face so. yeah I, I actually had kind of forgotten like yeah this was that that co-op feature was definitely one of those early impressions for me too like that was kind of a new aspect for me in in the board games so I really enjoyed not having to uh, lose friends over a game of Risk. Uh, Ken, what were your first impressions or earliest memories of the second edition Arkham Horror? My first introduction to Arkham Horror, I was the forever DM um, for my group of friends at the time. Mutual friend of ours, Justin, had picked up the board game, I think very shortly after you had. Um, And he had convinced me to come to his house and play with two or three other people. Like, hey, it's a Call of Cthulhu game. And I'm thinking I'm showing up to play a tabletop game because, hey, somebody else is running. And when I showed up and it was this board game, I was actually disappointed that, hey, it's just a board game that's out. But then, you know, hour and a half into that first game, I, I knew I was absolutely hooked. And somehow... Um, out of our group of friends, I'm the only one who does not actually own a copy of Arkham Horror in any edition. 
<laughs> because every time that somebody had wanted to play it and they knew that I was a big fan of it, they would go out and buy a copy and then they would have <laughs> me come over and teach them how to play. So I've never actually owned a copy, which I'm almost embarrassed to say. But uh, as we get further into our review of the game, um, you might understand how I'm the lucky one for not having the monetary sink that everybody else has <laughs> to this game. Uh, yeah, you could say that. But so... yeah, it was it was definitely the, the co-op feature um, which drew me in. Like, hey, this actually is kind of like a, a, an RPG in a, in a way. We're not competing. We are trying to work collectively towards the same goal. Um, and those those early early games that we were playing before we fully understand the depth of the rule book were definitely some of the uh, the learning curve as it were were, were some of the um, fondest memories I have of it. So I want to say I, I, I joke that I didn't learn all the rules of Arkham Orf for about the first year of playing because uh, one of the things I still remember that I messed that we messed up so many times was spending a clue token would give you a die. But if you were in a deficit, we spent extra clue tokens to, like, oh, we're already in a negative four skill check. Well, we have to spend four clue tokens to get out of our hole and a fifth clue token to actually get a chance. When uh, once you're in the negative, a clue token was enough. It was the official. <laughs> so we were burning clues like uh, nobody's business. We're just um, playing on hard mode, that's all. Right, exactly. <laughs> there was the nice rule of, like, when we learned about it, uh, the, 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 the real way it was written, it was like, oh, so we've been doing this a lot harder. Gotcha. I don't feel bad about messing it up because we weren't making it easier for ourselves. Yeah, we were playing a hard game on ultra hard mode because right. of our own ignorance, and it was kind of great. <laughs> like, <laughs> Right. So let's start talking about it, the core game only. No, no expansions yet. What are some of the things that the core game does well? We've kind of hit it with the first impressions, but specifically, what does Arkham Horror kind of have going for it that puts it in that win category for you? Uh, Tony, you you kick that one off. Yeah, I'd have to say, thinking through it, just the replayability, uh, sheer replayability with all the random things, the different uh, elder gods that you can fight against, and all all the uh, different components and the way things break down and the different characters. It just had so much going for it that um, you know, whenever you play, you're not getting the same experience uh, twice. Um, you're definitely seeing some different things uh, change even in a minor pull from the monster bag um, would totally transform how you approach the, the the map and everything like that so so I really love that aspect of it uh, it was uh, something you can pull out and play and people won't get tired of it because it's just got something different every time so I remember that was a big part um, of, of the gameplay experience and the fact that it was difficult means that winning felt uh, wonderful like if you actually won you're you're all high-fiving and you were just uh you were you were definitely up and that really was a great experience awesome uh ken what were some of the things that uh, arkham does well in your opinion it's not something you really talk about much in a game unless it's done terribly so it's nice to be able to actually toot a horn for somebody who has done the dice mechanics is done i think at, especially at the time um, was done really well um because it wasn't just hey roll two dice move your token it wasn't like hey you press the pop trouble bubble and see what happens. Mm -hmm. It was, you're playing a unique individual. You can adjust and control your character stats, which directly affect the um, the dice that you get to play for for different skill checks and stuff. I also think that, you know, adding the um, items, the item cards and stuff that your characters could, you know, equip um, to add bonuses or even just add different dice mechanics, like how huge was getting blessed early on in a game um, or that that late game 
um, curse where suddenly six only successes when you're like, you know, super close to the Elder God waking up or like the the entire half, you know, the southern seaboard of Arkham is just overrun with monsters. So I think the dice mechanic was the one thing that I really latched onto early in the game. Not necessarily like a coming from the, the, the RPG um, side that I came from. It wasn't a, hey, how do I min-max this to, you know, to mm-hmm. best effect? But it was... If I am forced to have terrible stats, are the dice something that I can still work with to have a chance at success? And I, I, I don't think that any of us ever felt, even in the early days when, you, like you said, we were playing with the, the clue token deficit. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think any of us ever thought that, hey, we don't have a chance at success on this. Right. Lots, lots of profanity was thrown around over the minimalistic possibility of success. But... <laughs> Um, I think that dice mechanic is one of the things that really kept me coming back to the game because it was so simple to learn mm-hmm. and every playthrough is different. So Some of the things I enjoyed about it and think that it actually does well is um, it was one of the earliest games I know that scaled to player count really well. Whether you're playing solo or up to the max eight players, like the difficulty of the game was scaled to the number of players pretty pretty balanced throughout core game only there's a little bit of like the revised edition kind of fixed a little bit of things because when you got to like a fifth player count it got a little funky other than that it was really nice to see how the game shifted in difficulty and, and kind of let you go okay you know, there's only two of you you're only gonna have so many actions the game takes the same amount of turns so something had to shift there one other thing and and tony you mentioned it was the re- high replayability and that's one thing i latched on to very early is it's a max eight player game which is already a big thing back in 2005 you had 16 investigators out of the box to play as so even with a max player game there was half of the possible characters sitting on the sideboard now granted that was probably by design because of the amount of times he would die or go insane and would need to grab a fresh sheet um, yeah <laughs> <laughs> and burning through your your your, your sideboard of uh, backup investigators was definitely a thing the ancient ones there was eight ancient ones so like even if you had a regular four player group you have four times the amount of characters for that four player group you have eight in, uh, ancient ones or uh, elder gods so you had like a lot of things that could shift with just a core game experience to give you different stories and the one thing that it, it modern board gaming has definitely like gravitated towards this a little bit more better um but it also had um because of the co-op feature everybody took turns kind of in the same phases like we all did our movement together then we all did our encounters together then we it wasn't one player did took their entire turn while everybody else sat there and watched them the the downtime was one of the things i think it handled very well even in those higher player count games when downtime started to show up because there was just eight people you had to get through movement or eight people who had to do encounters and make tests and, and or do combat with. And then as we got more prolific with it, we realized where we could condense some of those things. And the game was very good about that. Like, okay, it's the movement phase, everybody do your movement. Unless there's something really crazy, priority didn't matter as much. And to be able to do a co-op game that takes a long time with a lot of players and find those places that you can condense that time period was is something that i think it does very very well any other positive spins anything else in the core game experience that you guys want to bring up well i want to mention about the ancient ones is uh you know they do play differently like they, yeah. they do modify the game as a thought 
He's like, if you don't do it in time, you're screwed. Your 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 game is over. Uh, there's no fighting me because I end everything in existence, and it's so cool. You know, because of that, he's a little uh, more lenient in how much you can do before you fail, right? Um, and then some of the other ones uh, transform what their uh, pieces do and and certain things on the map. So it was definitely interesting. And you really started when you started to play more and more, you started to feel. Uh, how different the game was with each of them, even though it was just a minor uh, change in terms of, you know, volume of content, it was enough to really transform the experience. And people right. started to say, oh, yeah, we're doing an Azathoth run. This is kind of what we need to do and, and go for it. Right. Yeah. Yeah, and I, I completely agree with Tony. I was actually going to bring that up as well, because just changing out the Elder God also then affected the base monsters in the game. Mm-hmm. Um, so when you're pulling a cultist, Hey, no big deal. It's just a cultist, right? And then suddenly, like, oh no, <laughs> this cultist is actually endless, and this cultist, you know, does that, or this cultist, right. you know, in you know, um, throws some horror at you before you even get to fight him, as opposed to just standing there and leaning into your punch like a standard uh, cultist or maniac <laughs> normally would. Right. So. Right. Um, <laughs> I'm glad you pulled up the cultist example there, because okay? because that, that, that was like the big monster they affected. One thing that we always talk about on tabletop games is opportunities for a game. Like where where were the holes? Where were the things that could have been tightened up or or, or that you just did not find engaging? Uh, again, we'll kind of lead in with Tony. What were some of the opportunities that you found with Arkham Horror Second Edition that may or may not have been addressed in Third Edition or other modern game? Yeah. No, uh, I think the biggest one is uh, the imbalance in play experience for the players at the board. Um, Some players are having a great experience. You know, they're getting all the cool items. They're doing some big things. Other players, they go and they take a test, they fail, and they're stuck there for another turn. And, you know, they're watching everybody else do cool things, get cool things. um, or And they're stuck in in town trying to do something uh, useful and failing. Um, So I think that's going to be one of the things that I would say... uh, was a negative experience for some players and i know that it was a focus whenever we brought someone new to the table to try and ensure that their experience didn't feel that way or at least give them some sort of un- understanding of of why we enjoy the game so that they can come back and replay it and hit that that high note sometimes as well so so that's definitely the one thing i do want to highlight as a, a definite opportunity for the game play experience all right ken you got one I do actually. I was um, after uh, Tony called out about how we banished you to Kingsport one day. <laughs> no, no, no. Like that, that banishment to Kingsport was in the middle of league play, and tensions were high, and everybody knew their purpose and their role. And we laugh about it now, um, but man, like you could cut the tension at that table tonight, right? Um, no, and if I that was my first experience with Arkham I never would have come back and like I think Tony hit the the nail on the head when he was describing that Um, but for me actually I think what uh, a missed opportunity or not necessarily a missed opportunity but a less than optimized feature of the board is actually the um, the terror track Mm -hmm. Um, because it starts off all nice and okay increase the terror level here increase the terror level there once you get to what was it like terror level 7 then um, suddenly monsters become endless, like monsters banish to the outskirts, can just come directly into play. Um, I never, I never, I never felt that through all of our experience playing that we had ever really worried or focused much on the terror track, unless it was a specific mechanic that, or a specific elder god that dealt with it directly. In your base game, it was just kind of just another rule to keep track of. 
if we were to sit down and go over the mechanics and stuff like that, I think the terror track for me personally would have been something to, to take a different look at, maybe a different approach to. In general, um, the game has such good positive replayability for, for all of us, really, that that's almost nitpicky, um, in my personal opinion, of you know talking about negative things of the game. But right. it's the one that just kind of stuck out for me because unless everything was already going badly and then all monsters are now endless because of the terror level, like it was never really something that factored in much to the, to all of the, the games that we had played. I can't remember off the top of my head of which levels it was, but there was like three thresholds within it. There was like one, the general store closes, one, the magic shop closes, and one, the unique item shop closes. And every time you raised one, an ally of your ally deck left, left town. But we never, like, as a group, we never relied upon allies. We never necessarily, like, the shops a little bit, yes. As, you know, you had to get your gear, you had to get your stuff. But it was never, but you, you, you hit it again. Like, there's, like, unless there was a mechanic actually focused on it because of the Ancient One or an expansion was dealing with it directly. Or even sometimes just there. an event out of the Mythos deck where it's like, mm-hmm. oh, no, like, you know, increase the terror level for every monster in play, like... It's very much the truth on that. And uh, yeah, and it could wildly differ and you don't have uh, much control sometimes on it because, you know, all of a sudden buckets of monster spawn and then your terror track is just shooting up. And so it's uh, it's definitely something that um, wasn't as thematic as the rest of it, I think. so. Mm-hmm. Now, my opportunities are, are kind of funny because I'm actually approaching it more as the typical game host and setup and takedown guy of the game. <laughs> and this is a common common complaint about Arkham Horror Second Edition was the amount of fiddliness that the game actually has. The amount of tokens, the amount of decks, the amount of cards, the amount of stuff, the amount of rules that you have to track. Like, the, oh, you're not only tracking the Doom track, you're tracking this Terror track, you're tracking how many monsters are in the outskirts. So you have like three or four things the game board is trying to track. Not only your own characters are doing your own thing with your own right. uh, health and sanity tracks and all that. That's one of the opportunities. Like, I feel as much as i love the game for having all of these elements in it it was almost too much in one box for a non-hobbyist board gamer to get their teeth into right yeah it Um, it definitely did not feel like something that a casual board game fan or just you know hey come over let's play a board game right um, would would ever go through as a setup if you weren't like actually a part of the hobby mm -hmm. yeah and unfortunately, uh, to carry on to that, like adding that was just the core game experience. And then if you add all the expansions and extra stuff that keeps padding that, by the end you have unmanageable decks and, and huge amounts of content that just kind of gets lost with the amount of content that's in there. So it's it's it was a double-edged sword in my having to put a lot into the box for replayability. But then I think they may have put a little too much into the box um, to start with, which. I feel they may have learned that mistake, especially going to third edition, because the third edition has a lower, slightly lower player count and has slightly only has like four scenarios opposed to eight elder gods. While you may call it more like a nickel diming marketing technique, by limiting that a little bit, you save some of that shock of what am I getting myself into? Right. So that's that's core game experience now because this game has been out for 16 years at this point and the last expansion came out about 10 years ago 
there was a lot of extra stuff that came out over the course of six years of this game's lifespan uh, being a uh, being an active supported project of fantasy flight so let's dive into some of those expansions and kind of just talk about what we liked about each of them and it's not a favorite expansion what you didn't like about that particular one <laughs> so i i know i'm gonna save the the final expansion as our last one but let's just kind of go down the list as i like thought of them First up was uh, Curse of the Dark Pharaoh. This was a small box expansion keyed in on Narthlehotep and his whole um, shenanigans in Egypt. So they added exhibit items and patrolled neighborhoods were like the two main factors added into that expansion. Uh, Tony, what were your thoughts on on that one? Um, the exhibit items were pretty interesting, but um, with the sheer number of uh, cards and everything, uh, oftentimes we never really got to see it really hit its mark so um it became one of those things we'd have to plan for it in order to to fully experience the expansion so so that was one of the downsides to it otherwise it really didn't impact uh the gameplay experience for me too much so uh ken thoughts yeah i honestly i I have to agree with tony on that one it was like hey these items are mixed into the deck or these um, events are popping up from the mythos cards um Mm -hmm. So, hey, cool, there's this exhibit going on over here or these, you know, um, unique items and stuff popping up. But it was unfortunately never anything that we really focused on to, like, try and, hey, let's get as much of the the expansion into play as possible. Right. It was while we are, while we are playing the game, these things are popping up. And oftentimes, again, going back to, um, like, monster surges and stuff like that, where we'd be trying to... Hey, let's let's clear out that exhibit, uh, or let's take a take a uh, a really strong look at what's going on over at this event. Monster surge happens, and then suddenly we're just back to hey, let's just try and survive the game and not worry about it right now. Mm-hmm. So I think it, as an expansion, um, fantastic idea, but I think it just kind of got lost in the shuffle of the card mechanics. Yeah, um, I'm not going to necessarily add anything further to this one because I think both of you kind of hit the the pros and cons on it. Overall, not a bad expansion, but unless you stack the deck in the... We'll put the Dark Pharaoh cards on top of all the decks. Shuffle those, but just put them on top of the regular decks. You're not going to see it come into play too often. So let's talk about the one, the first big box expansion, which was Dunwich Horror. This added eight new characters, so it brought the roster, um, you know, half, you know, 50%, again, more uh, than the, the, the core. Four new ancient ones. They added the intra, uh, injury and madness deck. So if you actually went insane or were physically incapacitated, you could, instead of taking the standard penalty, grab a card off these decks and have a broken leg, uh, a phobia of some kind, like some sort of game mechanic as a penalty instead. Um, and more importantly, it added the sideboard of now you're not just in Arkham, but there's this tiny little village of Dunwich nearby that you can also visit. And guess what? It also has its own share of monsters, locations, and problems. So, uh, Tony, what were your thoughts with uh, Dunwich? What what were the good things and bad things with that one? Yeah, so the Madness Injury decks I thought were nice. It added more flavor instead of just being hurt or just being, you know, or just going insane. Uh, you added some uh, additional context as to what happened. And I thought that was a nice little flavor improvement. The introduction of a sideboard was interesting, uh, especially being the first big box expansion. It was really cool seeing uh, the world map uh, grow um, and learning some new mechanics there. Um, we'll learn to uh, despise that a little bit later on, but uh, <laughs> at that time it was fresh and new uh, and it was definitely cool. And then, you know, 
getting four new ancient ones uh, was just huge. Um, so I was a real big fan of uh, just expanding the different gameplay because uh, not only do you get to use it with the the Dunwich horror stuff, you could also uh, use it with just the core box, and you know you had the ability to mix and match as you needed to, which was really cool. So, mm-hmm. so yeah, overall I was a huge fan of uh, of of it. Uh, I was excited when it came out, and I definitely uh, picked it up uh, immediately when I could. So. Uh, Ken, thoughts on Dunwich Horror? My thoughts on Dunwich Horror are very sarcastic um, for the most part because, yeah, great, eight new characters. Why would you need any other characters other than Bob Jenkins anyway? Um, <laughs> I, have a, I am definitely a Bob Jenkins stan like, since day one, so let's just go from there. Uh, no, eight characters expanding the, the playable roster was huge. Um, like no other board game at the time that I was playing. I'm not saying it's never been done, but no other game at the time that I was playing had done anything like that. So it was definitely this. We've played the uh, we've played the hell out of the board the the base game. Now Dunwich Horror comes out, and it really revitalized our interest in it to where we were playing what probably two three games a week at one point with just the core game. And then it was like, uh, do we want to play Arkham again? Like I don't know. I guess maybe. And then Dunwich came out, and it was like, let's crack out Dunwich. Let's see what's going on here. Tony touched on the injury and the madness cards. Um, I do, I do like that mechanic, but it wasn't like the the thing that really tipped the scales for me for Dunwich. Um, for me, the sideboard itself, um, dealing with the fact that on top of the ancient one threatening to rise, we've now got what's in a sense uh, a mini boss um, that is building slowly if you just ignore Dunwich, um, which bit us in the ass i couldn't tell you how many times because yes. so like we're not going down to the waitley farm and now suddenly the dunwich horrors unleashed it's like oh my god we all have to get down there and we all have to fight this but yeah i i absolutely love the the mechanic of the actual dunwich horror having a mini boss on top of some of the more powerful monsters that are already out, out in play possibilities um and i think the this expansion was the first one that added unique monsters too wasn't it not unique in regards to like there's only one or two of them, but like adding an expansion of monsters to the cup. Mm, um, yes. That had, yeah. yeah. That so actually was, had like a significant increase in the monster cup, and that's just kind of the theme. The small box expansions added a few monsters and a few cars and a few things, right. and the big boxes were usually that that shot in the arm of like, nope, we're we're gonna like really increase what yeah. you're you're playing with. Like here's here's a handful more cultists. Here's a couple more of the more terrifying monsters. And by the way, this one's unique to Dunwich, so you know, kind of stuff. Right. Yeah. So yeah, like in general, I I felt that uh, Dunwich caused us to reevaluate how we played the game because because of the sideboard and the additional locations we needed to get to. Right. But it was definitely not anything that took away from the base game, and I think that Dunwich only added to the things that we loved about. Um, Arkham Horror. So I was a big fan of the Injury Madness decks myself too. Uh, I thought those were a fantastic way to change up what was just a generic penalty because sometimes you didn't know. Like, well, if I just lose all of my money, I know what I'm getting there, or I can draw this blind card and see maybe I don't lose all my money and I only I break an arm and I can only carry one-handed weapon. Well, I only have a one-handed weapon right now, so maybe that's not that bad. Adding the the ancient ones, adding the characters was all things. As Ken, you pointed out, the Dunwich Horror itself as its own mini-boss mechanic was really neat to see. And yes, definitely bit us in the ass 
more than once. <laughs> but that's usually how most Arkham games felt. Dunwich Horror, I think, was a really, really good expansion for um, the first big, uh, big expansion for the game. And I'm going to toggle back to small box expansion again. The biggest thing that uh, Black Goat of the Woods added uh, was uh, the corruption that you could get on your character. And there was a mechanic of kind of similar to the Injury and Madness, but you can get these corruption cards. And then if you get the wrong corruption cards, and game over for you. They did add a little bit of the Ancient One and, and some new monsters and things. But overall, what was your uh, Black Goat of the Woods feelings? Starting again with Tony. Uh, honestly, I didn't really play as much with that one. I know the Heralds was a new thing, um, or I added another Herald. And but yeah, when Black Go to the Woods came out, my the when I wasn't playing with you guys, the the group I played with didn't like the small box expansions as much. Uh, a lot of it because of the uh, Curse of the Dark Pharaoh and how you never really saw it hit. It was random, and sometimes it would hurt you way too much for it because you're hunting for things that uh, you may not ever see in the game and things like that. So. So yeah, I really don't have much experience with that one. Um, I got it, and I still have it in my collection, but um, I don't know if we've really cracked that one myself. So, Okay. Uh, Ken, uh, do you have any memories of Black Goat? Uh, not of playing it, but I do recall going to Gen Con one year and uh, purchasing a quote-unquote advanced copy like a week before it was released. Right. So we, we got to crack, op- crack it open and take a look at the mechanics and stuff uh, before the rest of humanity. But... Um, Black Goat, honestly, was one of those that just, when we added it to game, it was just another, you know, small box expansion, shuffled it into the decks. Hey, I've never seen this item before. Oh, it is Black Goat, you know, but so I don't really have any strong opinion, positive or negative on it. Um, I do know that I was never, um, I never felt like it was getting in the way or inconvenienced us when we played with it as an expansion. But there just wasn't enough that was like standout or memorable to me um, mm-hmm. to really, like I said, I can't really give it up, you know, a thumbs up or a thumbs down. It was, it was there. It, it, right. it definitely added to some moments in some games, but it didn't take away anything. So, and it's funny because I kind of echo both of you guys too in this one too, because like I was excited when we got Black Goat because a we got it a little bit early, like you said, Ken, and it was like yes, new expansion before everybody else. Let's, you know, like. I was excited anytime a new Arkham Horror expansion came out because it was something new to add to the game that we already liked. But I have no actual real memories of anything out of Black Goat that was like, this was what made this expansion a thing. Let's go to another big box. A big thing that Kingsport added was another eight investigators, another four Ancient One, Elder One, Elder Gods. They added the Guardians, which was a response to the Heralds that King Yell added. Guardians was the, the positive recourse of like, hey, the Heralds were like a sub-boss that you could add to the game that really screwed up the mechanics and made things a lot harder so you could also choose to add a guardian which gave you some bonuses and some nice things that could happen to you the one thing i gotta say is they did a really good job throughout all these expansions keeping it very modular like if you wanted to use a herald you could if you wanted to use a guardian you could if you wanted to use both you could but never felt like well if you're gonna play this expansion you have to use a guardian but uh the other big thing kingsport added was kingsport itself a whole nother sideboard that um, if you added that, then you had to go and deal with all of the nastiness that was up in Kingsport. Uh, so Tony, what were your what was your takeaways on Kingsport Horror? Kingsport Horror was uh, was a fun sideboard. Um, I remember the mechanics were a lot of fun to maintain and and kind of visit and see some of the new encounters. Um, 
but it added uh, Rex Murphy, uh, which I thought was one of the more interesting <laughs> characters, the man who is forever cursed, uh, investigative yes. reporter. And, uh, you know, it was just one of those things that demonstrated, um, you know, kind of what they could do with the characters, because, you know, there's only so many stat lines you can do for the characters. And uh, once you start looking into it, you saw that there are, you know, tracks generally followed a certain theme and everything. But it was the unique roles that they added that kind of made it a, a fun experience and and really transformed. If everything else remained the same, you choose different investigators, you have a different experience. So, so yeah, I was a big fan of Rex um, and uh, and the the sideboard as well. So awesome, uh, Ken. What were your Kingsport experiences? I don't recall anything ever happening in Kingsport ever. <laughs> <laughs> no. Well, I have a personal history of Kingsport with Kingsport as an expansion um, and the round and time suck that it is trying to get through some of the um, the investigator cards in Kingsport. Um, honestly, the thing I, I like most about Kingsport is at the time that it was introduced, it really... For me personally, I felt it added a, a small amount of roleplay aspect back into the game. And yeah, that a lot of that was just the way that we had approached the game and how we as a, a player base had always tried to you know, get into character a little bit when we were playing. But I think Kingsport is where it really, like with the, the added Guardian um, mechanic, it wasn't just something like, okay, we've got a Guardian on our side, blah, blah, blah. It was always, the way at least we played was, hey, if based on which Guardian was in play, we would actually play the characters a little bit, like, you know, trying to get on the Guardian's good side or trying to uphold some values of the Guardians, depending on which one it was. Or, inversely, trying to avoid the uh, doing things that would cause the Guardian to look down on us, you know, as we're sneaking in places and, you know, breaking down doors and making rolls that we know we shouldn't be making. So for me, Kingsport was always just more of the more of the, the social aspects added to it. And I, I really didn't focus much on the mechanics of Kingsport um, so much as, hey, we've got an additional board to play with. There are new mechanics that we're, we're trying to get through and stuff like that. But in general, Kingsport was one that I enjoyed, but I don't think it's ever it was I don't think it was ever an expansion that I personally said, hey, let's toss Kingsport on and see what happens today. My personal take on Kingsport is I really did like it. And that might be because my favorite character came from Kingsport. That was Liz Chen. Yeah. <laughs> um, Our martial artist, yes. Yes. And like kind of like Tony, how you you gravitate on Rex Murphy having a very unique mechanic of like, well, you know he's always cursed and and is pretty much screwed and so why are you going to play a character that that pretty much is playing uh handicapped the entire time i was fascinated by the fact that lily chen had a fourth modifiable stat line that she could adjust her health and sanity so like i just found that fascinating and i, I loved playing with her ironically my other favorite character trish was also one that really messed around with your your stat sliders too so i guess that was just the mechanic i enjoyed messing around with when i played characters so um i have a little fondness for for kingsport because of one of my favorite characters coming from it but i liked the town i liked how it was laid out the rifts that it had instead of like a kingsport monster or dunwich monster that would that would show up was a little bit different but unlike the king uh the dunwich horror i felt kingsport's rifts were if you're unlucky enough where the rifts actually impact your game then you're screwed but it was a lot of like the right cards had to pop up for the rifts to actually become a problem opposed to it's going to constantly grow into a problem uh, it was more stuck on random chance for that mechanic to either 
hinder you or just not really be a part of your game. So yeah. I liked it and I didn't like it for that purpose. We'll flip it back to the small box again. Now we'll hit the king in yellow and talk a little bit about that. That added blight cards, which were negative allies, essentially like negative allies for you. The herald cards, which was, hey, you know what's better than an ancient one? An ancient one with a best friend sidekick lieutenant that's going to also screw up your game. And then more importantly, it added the, the, the act cards and the king in yellow story that was uh, the play was going on in town and it would advance in certain points with the mythos deck uh causing you more and more trouble as the the play uh reached its second or possibly third act so tony why don't we talk about king and yellow for you how was that whenever we put king of yellow in i always wanted the axe to go i always wanted to see what would happen and uh, i think the best i ever saw and i could be uh, remembering incorrectly but best i ever saw is i think we got to act two and uh i never got to see what happened after that so so that was always something that i i kind of wanted to see what would happen with it um it definitely felt more thematic um and it was definitely cool which is why, you know, it came out first and then we picked up Black Goat of the Woods and it didn't have any of that same flavor, uh, which is kind of why Black Goat of the Woods was more of a disappointment. But at least the King in the Yellow had something we could chase after. Um, you know, once we uh, decided we wanted to get a different experience, we could be like, hey, let's let's see what we can do with the King in the Yellow. Let's see if we can get through it. And and that was a lot of fun to kind of chase through. So, so yeah, that was probably the, the thing I remember most about it. So. And Ken? Uh, so I, I personally love King in Yellow. Um, I think it is probably my favorite of all of the Arkham Horror expansions. Um, and I think the reason for it is because while it does not have a sideboard or anything else um, adding to um, the game, and it didn't add additional uh, playable characters or anything like that, and it really didn't change anything mechanically other than what you call, other than adding the, the Herald mechanic and the Blight cards, which even that felt more thematic to King and Yellow as opposed to a mechanic change. I think the reason I love King and Yellow the most was because the other small box expansions were, hey, let's shuffle these cards into some decks and see what happens. Where King and Yellow had the standout of we are now in Act 1, we are now in Act 2, we're about to get into Act 3, and in order to stop or herald in like what was coming next, you were now reliant upon um, getting uh, draw cards from your decks as opposed to sitting back and waiting for, oh, hey, uh, this Mythos card is now popping this event from this expansion box where King and Yellow was something that you were like, oh, please let it be something that we can work with as opposed to like, oh, no, this is crippling us. Yeah, and <laughs> well, just, or just an for... added side effect. Yeah, and just a note for everybody, Act 3 was the end of the game, so... Yes. Um, sometimes you wish for that after you had a pretty bad run, but um, <laughs> that's an aside, and not as a feature. <laughs> that's true. That's, no, that's, a, that's not a bug, it's a feature. Yes. <laughs> right. So King and Yellow, like, I, I think I gravitated with you, Ken, a little bit more on this one. I love the act, I love the idea of the narrative of, like, there is a play going on, we are playing through throughout trying to figure out our investigations while this plays ah, going through in this background of the story which is then affecting us in gameplay if those the next act begin cards show up which added kind of that random it was almost like a pandemic style draw from the pandemic way. games of like i'm gonna draw this mythic card i hope it's not the act Ooh, okay good see i always saw it as it was the most cinematic of the expansions that it was mm. added because it took us from investigators in arkham um doing your thing 
and it suddenly became like we're criminals in a heist movie and the time clock is something that we just can't control so like you could literally be you know at one side of the board and then have to race all the way across the board in the next round or two in order to prevent you know doom from falling and it just like i said it just added that extra energy to the game that right. some of the other expansions didn't. Sorry to jump in on there, aren't you? Oh, no. Good, 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 good. I like it. I was just say the one thing I didn't like about King Yellow is I never really felt the Blight cards really had a major impact on us. Like, they existed, they would occasionally be a, a pain, but much like Black Goat, if it didn't show up, it didn't do anything, I barely noticed it existed. Opposed to being like, oh, that's a thing we have to worry about. Alright, we're rounding out to the last three expansions. Innsmouth Horror was net, uh, was another big box expansion this added. This one was insane to me. It added 16 investigators, so it added the same amount that you get in the core box as brand new investigators. Eight ancient ones, uh, the sideboard of Innsmouth, and then they also added the epic battles, which if your final conclusion with the uh, Elder God wasn't tough enough, let's add a, a deck that gives you different mechanics, which honestly one of the things I enjoyed about it was while we didn't use it in every game, if you wanted to give a fight against Yig versus a fight against um, Ithaqua or any of the other ancient ones a different flavor and have the final fight actually feel different, the epic battle cards are what did it because everyone had their own unique decks with it. Tony, why don't we lead off with you? What was Innsmouth for you and what was good or bad about it? Uh, so Innsmouth, uh, and we'll go ahead and focus on a character again, uh, brings Hank Sampson into the mix. <laughs> oh, yeah. Hank <laughs> Sampson. Hank Sampson, the, the simple farmer. Uh, who's so simple that he doesn't even know he's fighting monsters at first, so uh, he gets to ignore that first horror check because he just doesn't quite understand the insanity that he's fighting against. Such a cool thing. And he's looking for Pa, and I can't can't remember how many times people go, Pa? Where's Pa? You know, and... (laughs) Right. uh, So that was a a cool thing that uh, that we saw with with Innsmouth. the sideboard was uh, interesting. I don't remember too much in the mechanics side of it, but I remember it was definitely fun. And uh, of the ones when we would start doing the mix of all the different sideboards, I remember Innsmouth was generally in the running. Um, so uh, I just don't have too much re- uh, recollection on specifics with that. But, but yeah, cool characters. Um, obviously added more cards. Um, and uh, just, you know, it had uh, one of the characters you mentioned, Trish, is in this as well. So just definitely added a lot to uh, replayability and everything like that. So the epic battles, honestly, never really got into as much. Um, but, uh, you know, the the rest of it was definitely a big thing. So. And Ken, what about you? What was Innsmouth to you? So Innsmouth to me, honestly, when we're review- reviewing, um, knowing that we are going to be coming on the on the show, um, Innsmouth was the one that I couldn't remember. Like, what? which one was Innsmouth? What did it do? My personal favorite mechanic in the entire second edition run was the personal stories that was added. And it was such, like, I, I never remembered where it came in, but it was, you are no longer simply playing Bob Jenkins' door-to-door salesman. You are now playing Bob Jenkins' door-to-door salesman. But here's the reason why you're actually in Arkham, and there is a win and a fail condition that, actually both can end up benefiting you depending on what style of game you're actually running through um like hank hank sampson for example is in town searching for paw well if you do things correctly and you succeed then hank finds what happened to paw and now he becomes even more formidable when fighting against monsters but if you don't then hank 
finds out what actually happened to Pa. (laughs) (laughs) And now he's suddenly, like, hit with, uh, you know, some melancholy as he's going into these combats. So, yeah, like, Innsmouth was one of those where we played Innsmouth a lot. Yeah. Because it's such an iconic Cthulhu location. But I had completely forgotten that the other reason that we played it so much is because of all of the mechanics that were involved in it. My least favorite mechanic of all time is an Innsmouth, and that is, and I know we, we go back and forth on this one, and my my dislike of it is more in a humorous manner, but the epic battle system for the other yeah. ones. The reason I don't like it is because, for me personally, there is nothing more satisfying than having Bob Jenkins with a shotgun destroying Cthulhu. And when you <laughs> change my ability to do that, I do not like it. <laughs> <laughs> and that's fair. Yeah, that's, and for my take on Innsmouth, I think it's funny because, like, Tony called out Trish's from here, so this, you know, and 16 new characters was always a big thing for me. Like, what? Oh, we got even more characters to play with? And, like, you know, Trish, I think Samson were both favorites of ours but you got um uh george barnaby the lawyer that came out of this you have yes. uh william york the grave digger like was was silas from this one as well uh silas was in this one as well like it a lot of all some of our personal favorite characters came out of this expansion and unfortunately on, on a flip side one of the ones i love but also feels probably one of the more broken characters uh to play in a large group was uh patrice hathaway could spend her clues uh, for other people. <laughs> so it was, okay, Patrice, right. if if we have five or more players, Patrice is going to be one of them. We're going to send her, she's going to be our clue gatherer, and everyone else is just going to use her clue pool, um, opposed to trying to, like, divide up. We You have strategies with these characters, and, like, it was one of the things, like, if I feel like, you know, how Bob Jenkins with a shotgun was one of our go-tos. Patrice in a, hot, Patrice in a high count game was another one of our go-tos, because it was... Right so critical to have those that clue sharing mechanic behind her right. um, and uh, the dreamer with his gate box was the, was the oh, third yeah, yeah. go to in a big group game now there is something uh, from this expansion that we didn't really see a lot of but I thought was flavorful just didn't mm-hmm. really come up was the uh, the Innsmouth look yes. deck yeah. yes. um, you basically had a 1 in 10 chance of having the Innsmouth look um, right. you would basically flip a card when it tell you or X amount of cards and if you flipped over the one Innsmouth look card then uh, you're devoured and uh, a uh, um, I think it's a deep one gets spawned there because it's you yep. now and you yeah. get to uh, basically create a new character so it was a neat little mechanic uh, lots of flavor but not really impactful in terms of gameplay or experience so yeah the fed uh, fed, uh, feds track in Innsmouth was the other thing that was like it it would show up or it would not based on things going on. Right, right. And that was like, well, if the feds show up, they lock down Innsmouth, murder all the monsters. Cool. Is this a bad thing? Kind of, if you're there when it happens. Right. <laughs> yeah. And it's a, and with the sideboards, ha- it, you you made a you had to make like a logical choice. Like, I need to go to Innsmouth. I need to go to Kingscourt. I need to like it was always a destination of like I need to go there. You're not just gonna go there for 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 fun. So I felt like the Fed track never really hit home for us. We got two expansions left now, officially. This last small box expansion, which was Lurker at the Threshold. This one added the alternate uh, gate mechanics. So instead of the standard gates, you would use these uh, gates that would have little mechanic attaches, uh, attachments to them. Like, uh, you might lose some health or sanity. It might move. It might spawn monsters. So it changed up that mechanic uh, if you use those. They had the Dark Pack deck, which... Uh, 
for the low, low price of something horrible happening to you in the future, you can get a boost of power now, which I will be glad to say that that was a consistent thing that they kept going on in, in future Arkham Files games of the Dark Pack being too good for itself and usually screwing the player uh, the players over in the end. Uh, and then this one is the one where they had the relationship cards too, which I thought was a, a fun like, uh, twist on mechanic where the, they would be dealt between players and then the players uh, who are sharing a card between them would actually have this shared mechanic to kind of build a, a group or a RPG style party ties to each other. Not just personal stories that you're trying to do with Bob Jenkins or, or whoever, but Bob Jenkins is, you know, rivals or best friends with, you know, William York, who's the player to his left. Right. <laughs> so, Tony, what were your Lurker at the Threshold experiences? What was good? What was bad out of that one? I really like the relationship side, uh, just adding additional flavor to characters. Um, basically, because you're adding an additional element that isn't on the character cards, uh, just makes it that much easier to role play that experience. So, um, what was it though? Uh, I'm looking at the list now. Friendly Rivals was uh, one of the fun ones. Uh, between you and your partner, investigator with fewer monster trophies gains plus one on combat checks, and the one with fewer gate trophies gains plus one on fight or lore checks to close gates. Uh, so it was kind of a neat thing where you're trying to balance out because if you're tied, neither of you gain the benefit. So it's a race, you know, and you're trying to, to, to work that out as well. But having that additional element to tie you to your your uh, people, uh, you know, sitting across from you on the table and everything, I thought was neat and had that extra level of consideration that uh, that made it fun uh, and just, you know, changed up the experience and the stories that would be told. So the relationship yeah. cards were huge for that. So, uh, Ken, what were your takeaways on Lurker? I know Lurker added a bunch of new spells and stuff like that. So oh, yeah. uh, the great Drake got reintroduced to our uh, play stream at that point. <laughs> because it was like, yeah, I mean, magic is cool and all. Like, we can seal gates and stuff. But then I think Lurker is where it was really like, hey, let's let's do a deep dive into like what the the magic system is or the the magic spell list and stuff actually is. Um, yeah, the the relationship relationship mechanic was absolutely something that I think all of us enjoyed. Like, and that was one that we would bring in even if we were just playing a base game, um, right? Just because it did add that extra level. Uh, it. It really revitalized some of the original intent of the game, I think, in our in in our playthroughs and stuff. So I've I've while nothing truly stands out about Lurker for me, it was definitely something that when Lurker came out, it was hey let's get back into this, let's you know play the play the bejesus out of this and see how it's actually changing things. I think with Lurker, knowing that Miskatonic was on the horizon, I think with Lurker is where we started. Let's replay this scenario. Let's replay this scenario. And that's where I think we started our playthrough of like, we'll do one expansion on this one. We'll do two expansions on this playthrough and stuff. And I think it, Lurker is what really caused us to sit down, pull the boxes out again for like the, what, ninth or tenth time in a seven-year span. <laughs> right. <clears throat> And get ready to play because I know that um, at this point we had we had contemplated doing the let's just put every expansion together and see what happens um, game. So yeah, I think Lurker, um, not necessarily anything specific mechanic wise other than the the relationship um, aspects. I think Lurker was just one of those things that caused us to find our love for the game again. And so like Lurker, get, it has positive. Um, feedback for me from that aspect, but again, it was it was nothing specific about it that really stood out. 
I couldn't tell you why I love Lurker other than the fact that it got us playing at the table again after like probably close to a year off, I think, at that point. Possibly, yeah. Yeah, I'm going to echo the relationship cards. I think were one of the, the, the best mechanics to come out of Lurker because while the personal stories were really, really cool and I'm always invested in like what is, you know, this particular investigator up to, having a shared goal between people uh, whether it be your business partners, whether you're friendly rivals, whether, you know, whatever that uh, story is, having a shared mechanic between each other was something that was like, okay, so now I have a reason to really work together with someone else at the table and not just we happen to be playing a co-op game. Like, okay, you're sitting next to me, we're business associates, let's let's do that. We're collectors, let's do that. Let's make sure um, if we're friendly rivals, uh, what is, you know, if I'm sitting next to Bob Jenkins, is he, he's going to get the he's going to get the monster trophies, but maybe I'll get the gay trophies, and we'll have like that shared bonus between each other. But the one thing I just we tried it a few times and it never clicked with us was those alternate gates. I don't know exactly what it was, but I have a feeling it was just one too many mechanics to to balance and drinks with. You have all the other things going on. You have madness and injury. You have uh, personal relationships. You have or your your personal plot cards you have your relationship cards you had all these pieces and i think it was just near the end of uh, all the expansions of here's yet another thing that we will get have to track and figure out okay this gate flip what does that mean what is it doing how are we going to approach it i, I think it was just at that point it was one too many things for us to and i, I think that was actually why i kept believing lurker introduced the gate busters <laughs> because of the alternative gates right now those were the fun gates that like you know well, you know gates normally sat on a location but not not, not these they're gonna wander around the streets like monsters <laughs> um it was you know that's the one i remember and you know mechanically if you left the space after you explored the gate if you left the space with the gate you would have to re-explore it before you could close it and if the gate moved off of you, you had to do it anyway. So, <laughs> yep. Yeah. Oh, or it would randomly suck up a investigator who was not ready to go into another world gate at any point. Right. Yeah. I, well, that's the downside of playing in Arkham anyway, is <laughs> you might get sucked into a gate you're not ready for. It's true. Uh, so last expansion, and I'm going to say this is an, something that isn't common that I've, you know, doesn't necessarily happen in most uh, expansion game lines, but this was Miskatonic uh, Horror. It did not add a sideboard like the other big box expansions. However, it was the expansions of expansions. It added stuff for every other expansion. Um, it added new relationship cards. It added extra blights. It added extra... New skills. New skill cards. Like, it, yeah. everything that was in those decks... Uh, in those other expansions, it had cards for it. Most importantly, it had new encounter cards for all the expansion locations. So, like, when you had Dunwich Horror, you had three decks for the locations in Dunwich. That was all you ever saw. Where every other expansion added some new encounters for the core board locations, you never saw new Insmith encounters. You never saw new Dunwich Encounters until Miskatonic came out. Uh, the other big thing that it came with was Institutions, which was kind of kind of a group patron sort of thing. Like, okay, are you guys working with the mob? Are you guys working for the museum? Are you guys working? And it added like kind of a group institution that you could be working towards, which was for the most part a beneficial thing. 
Uh, Tony, what was your take on Miskatonic, the capstone of Arkham Horror Second Edition? It was interesting since we owned everything. Um, our experience was, you know, we could use everything in the box. Mm-hmm. I know that was definitely one of the interesting uh, decisions people had to make if they didn't contain the or control the whole entire collection, right. uh, because this only contained or uh, this contained parts for everything. And if you only had a select few or, you know, you just had the core game, um, it definitely wasn't a value add compared to some of the other expansions for sure. But this is also the one that kind of basically you didn't know you were playing it because the cards were just introduced in it. Obviously, we remembered our favorite cards, but sometimes we get one and we're like, was that in one of the expansions in the base or is that a Miskatonic? So it didn't really like have anything that jumped out at you with a a few exceptions if i remember correctly i believe it introduced cards that had dual effects uh one if you were using a particular expansion or in that expansion and then uh if that wasn't the case then you would um you know basically see uh something different going on like uh um so that was uh i remember something along those lines but other than that yeah it's it's something that was really cool added a lot of flavor and you know changed up your your encounters but it wasn't one that you knew, oh, yeah, that's a Miskatonic horror card or things like that. It was just sort of uh, it sort of just added to everything else. And as a result, you know, you never played with just Miskatonic horror cards. And other than the institutions, you really didn't have much uh, to to differentiate it otherwise. So really good summary of it. Uh, Ken, what were your thoughts on Miskatonic? So Miskatonic, for me personally, um, I always had this weird relationship with Arkham Horror second edition because we never played first edition. Mm. I don't think we even knew first edition existed because it was what like 12 or 14 years before no it was 87. 87 was uh first edition of Arkham Horror. Yeah, it was it was pushing yeah. almost 20 years. Yeah. So we never really had anything that was like a revision um to compare to. But Miskatonic always to me felt like Arkham Horror Second Edition Expansion Second Edition. Um, it it updated some mechanics, not drastically, more of a more of an Edera type of a situation, where it just you know laid out and clarified some rules, mechanics, and stuff that we may or may not have been choosing to ignore for half a decade. It also had that uh, um, what was it the the new player reference sheet I think that came with it where it was like if you've never played Arkham before like here's a, a quick and dirty rules sheet kind of a situation which was just nice to be able to look up what book a rule we were we were struggling to find might have been in. Right. Um, I think just the sheer number of cards that it added to the game um, was a uh, was a value add for our group personally because yeah, like Tony had touched on, we we owned everything up to this point, so this was definitely something that we could uh, take advantage of in every scenario that we played um, Arkham Horror with. Um, and I think this was kind of not just a capstone for um, the product line, but this was a capstone I think for our player group as well because it was, hey, this is the expansion for all of the expansions. This is like the the big buy um, that we were looking for to, to get some of the other stuff updated a little bit. And it definitely um, was definitely something that we, um, we played the hell out of um, as we were getting through our checklists to make sure that we covered everything we could cover. I think you guys are right on that. Miskatonic to me was the what I needed to go back and replay 
with just yeah. Dunwich Horror. It, it made me go back and like, okay, now that we're getting fresh locations, let's let's see what this old first expansion actually had in it, and and see what it is with a, a little a little extra boost. Because it only added expansion mat materials for expansions that you had, it had that. For me, I had everything. I didn't really care. Like, okay, cool. It's 100% usable. But I do know it really split the, the fan base of, like, if you weren't buying small box expansions because they weren't really a big impact to you, there's a good 25-30% of this box that's just useless to you. Right. But the price tag never changed, so... Do you go and get those expansions so that you could use this? Do you even get this? Was uh, a difficult choice for some people. But I think it was a very good touchstone of how do we revitalize the entire second edition game line by giving a little bit of everything back uh, of what may have hit the cutting room floor. Like, oh, this was a cool idea that we thought of after the fifth expansion that we could have used in the first expansion. I And I call that one out because that's like um, the Heralds uh, showed up much later after in uh, Dunwich uh, and they made a Dunwich Horror Herald card because it made a lot of sense of like, well, we already kind of have these lieutenants. That's right. kind of what we were using the Dunwich Horror here, but we didn't really come up with this Herald mechanic yet. So let's make a Herald sheet for him. So I, I really like Miskatonic for that, but it definitely only really did anything if you used it with other expansions. So best you could do is know that it existed in there and and enjoyed it. We kind of hit upon it in the in the process. So as we kind of talk through all the different expansions and the pros and cons of each of them. So let's go kind of with a recap here. Tony, what was your favorite expansion and why? So yeah, I'd probably have to say Dunwich Horror. It was the first big box expansion, obviously. So it has a bigger impact on me. And I know I've played it probably more than the other big box expansions overall as a result. Um, but the Madness Injury decks did add a little more flavor. So instead of... Uh, you know, this uh, reliable mechanic, you had an option and you had something that could add a little more flavor and, of course, stories uh, to your 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 encounters and your your playthrough. So I really thought that was a, a big thing uh, overall, um, although close second would have been uh, Innsmouth Horror because the characters were just so good. So many iconic characters that we still tell stories about nowadays uh, came from that set. So, but yeah, uh, Dunwich Horror was definitely big for me. All right, Ken. What about you? I'm gonna take the <laughs> I'm gonna take the question in two separate ways. Um, first, what is my favorite to play through? Um, I, I think I mentioned it before that um, King in Yellow I think is my favorite expansion to play through, just because of the way it it kind of changes the overall pace and setting of of the game itself. Mm -hmm. um, you're no longer just trying to survive a Cthulhu-esque mystery that's going on in um, in Arkham. You're now racing the clock, and it, it gave it that heisty feel um, to the game, which was something I really enjoyed, especially in a co-op game. Um, but what I think is the best expansion um, from a adding to the depth and, and, and richness of the game, uh, I think I have to agree with Tony that it's it's either going to be, um, uh, was it Innsmouth or, or Dunwich, because those are the two that really added the investigators, added some of the mechanics that we loved um, and just in general really got us playing the game again. And it, it's funny mm -hmm. that I keep mentioning like getting us to play the game again, but when we recap a little bit, in a little bit, um, I'll mention why exactly we were taking four or five breaks in a five-year span <laughs> of the game. But it was definitely 
like value add to the game i think dunwich was the one that was like hey take a look at this like we're adding an extra board to the game and we're doing all this you know take a look at what they're doing with the game and it could be something massive going forward so i, I think you know player style king and yellow um and then just in general value add to the game i think dunwich is really what set us up for all of the expansions that were going to come my personal favorite is Innsmouth, and a lot of it is just the amount of investigators, the amount of ancient ones, just the sheer amount of new content that was added in there that wasn't necessarily new mechanics. And that was that was just my personal favorite thing of like, I like seeing new characters, I like seeing new ancient ones, but I didn't need a pile of mechanics attached to it. Uh, just give me more of the things I already have. And I, that's why I think I uh, gravitated towards Innsmouth a lot. Uh, myself. So now let's flip it over. Uh, least favorite expansion, Tony. Um, I think we kind of hit on it. Black Go to the Woods didn't really add anything that um, felt special to me. So, I mean, I don't even remember much of that particular expansion. And uh, I know I own everything, but that's the one I always uh, second guess myself. Did I actually pick that one up? <laughs> I don't remember. Uh, so that that's always one. Like every time I'd read through the list of expansions, just... Uh, trying to remember uh, that was always the one that I'm like I don't remember let me go double check so right uh, Ken I completely agree with Tony um, because anecdotally we have played base games where we would pull a card and be like what the hell is that what the hell is that symbol oh black goat okay and it, it just <laughs> didn't really nothing about it stood out unless we were specifically trying to play black goat and trying to get those new cards and, and mm -hmm. stuff so um, was it worth the purchase? Yes. Was it something that added depth and, and stories and like war tales and stuff like that to our, our catalog? Not really. Uh, and of course, uh, in in keeping in suit with the two of you, uh, Black Goat of the Woods was the uh, un, uh, most forgettable expansion, uh, I think, too. As as both things you hit, like, there's nothing nothing in black goat stood out of like haha that's from black goat i remember that experience i remember that story like it just always felt fell flat and you know when you have eight yeah they're not gonna all be rock stars and that's that's right. okay too I, I i think what best summarizes black goat um for for your listeners would be the fact that the three of us who have easily played probably a hundred games of arkham each in doing research to prep for this podcast <laughs> could not remember what black goat was even after looking it up yeah <laughs> I mean, that, I, I think that's a little that, telling that tells more about it than than pretty much anything else <laughs> yep so in a quick thing in the last uh little bit here we've talked about argamore really well uh pros cons all over but who would you suggest arkham horror second edition for and who would you say should probably just stay away from arkham horror uh, Tony, why don't you take the point on this one? Oh, yeah. Anybody who hates luck in board games. <laughs> it uh, should or should not get it. They definitely should not get it. Uh, okay. For those who should get it, I should say. Uh, uh, those who like uh, to tell or love to build stories uh, out of gameplay elements, there's a great benefit to, uh, to the way the game plays out with all the different things that happen. And because the different characters can um, have different results with these uh, with these events, it's sometimes uh, just a story that tells itself, and it's just endlessly entertaining. Anybody who loves a great co-op game, um, 
admittedly it is a bit long on the longer side but um it is one of the few games that supports an eight player co-op experience um without you know actually breaking the the actual intention of the game so um so that's something that can be done in a in a party setting and with the exception of other massive games from uh, Fantasy Flight, there are very few eight-player games in general. So, um, so yeah, those are the kind of people I would definitely suggest it for. And then those of you who are interested in Arkham from any of the other brand uh, games that they put out or in the Cthulhu Mythos, it's definitely a lot of fun and a great way to explore the Mythos um, for sure. So, so that's what I'd recommend it for. Perfect. Uh, Ken, recommend for and who would you advise to stay away? Uh, I would advise any casual board game fan to stay away. If you just like to pick up a game and play with a couple friends, Arkham is not the game for you. Just because of the amount of setup, the amount of um, um, teardown, the rules, like the rule book itself is, I think, close to 30 pages. And not very well organized. Correct. Um, so if you're just like a casual fan of like, hey, let's get, let's get together and play a game, this might not be the one for you. Um, if, however, you are a fan of nerd culture and you like board games and you like you know, in-depth, well, games games with extensive rules and stuff like that, and anything with replayability, um, then Arkham Horror 2nd Edition is definitely something that you should take a look at. Also, if you are in a gaming group that has that awkward five-player level, there are a handful of board games for five players. However, there is only a handful of board games for five players. <laughs> so if you're <laughs> right. if you've got those games and you've played them a bunch, um, Arkham Horror is a great alternative to that because um, it's it steps up the difficulty when you add that fifth player. Um, it's good, like Tony said, for up to eight. It can be soloed, um, as Justin and I can attest that we've we've played a number of solo games that are either one player playing with one investigator or one player playing with multiple investigators. It is a game that allows you to just sit back, um, play it at your own pace. And I think that's the other thing about the the time sink in playing a round of Arkham Horror that needs to be said. If you optimize rounds and, and quickly blow through all of the, the turn orders and stuff like that, you can get through a game of Arkham Horror relatively quickly. If you want to sit back, enjoy company, enjoy the gameplay itself, um, and take your time playing the game, that's when you get into like the two and a half, sometimes three hour games. But those two and a half to three hour games are probably some of the best games that we've played because once you're invested that much time, the, the tension level of whether or not you're going to succeed at this point um, definitely adds an additional element to the game. So yeah, definitely groups of five who are more than casual fans of tabletop uh, board games. Um, and then anybody who is just, like Tony said, interested in the Cthulhu Mythos and is a uh, quote-unquote gamer, um, this game is definitely something you should take a look at. Well said, both of you. I would say it's on recommended fours, again, like Ken said, or and, and Tony, I think you did too, with the if you're a fan of Mythos, if you're a fan of Cthulhu, it's definitely uh, heavily thematic. If you're someone who likes to inter like build the story of your characters and not just have like this is what's happening to you but try to chain what all these random events are doing uh to your story and you like to have that creative drawing the the string between all of your events 
it's really good to do that. Um, it won't they won't naturally do that for you. Sometimes the events will play out in such a way where it's like, nope, that is the story. This is what happened to that poor soul. The luck part of it and the fiddliness part of it are definitely things that if you're not comfortable with board games that have those elements, this will be an overwhelming experience that you will not enjoy. And for better or for worse, if you're a player who really doesn't care too much about the flavor text or the or, or the, the the narrative elements behind the game, I feel second edition is going to fall flat for you. If you just go, okay, what's happening? Make a strength test. Okay, fight us, fight this monster. What are you doing? You're making a a strength test at a minus two, and you're just blowing through the things mechanically. It loses a lot of what we love about the game, and I think if that's your approach to board games. There are better choices for you uh, than Arkham Horror at that point. Overall, as you can tell throughout this entire discussion, we love Arkham Horror. We can't pretty much recommend it enough, but it has its uh, hang-ups and it, you know, its lovable flaws in our opinion. Yeah, and I, I think that's a caveat that I think needs to be mentioned. That for our extensive love and almost fanboy level of appreciation for this game, I think all three of us are able to sit down and recognize, like, this is a flaw, this is a flaw. Based on the player group you're playing with, this is a flaw. Um, so it's not that we have this, like, hey, this is the best game ever. This right. is just a game that the three of us truly love for the reasons we've stated. Um, but yeah, like, we are we are aware that the game has many flaws and, and mechanical issues. Last thing, I uh, want to say thank you to both uh, Ken and Tony for joining me in, in this discussion and kind of re, you know, getting the band back together, if you will, uh, to talk about Arkham Horror 2nd Edition. But if either of you have anything going on that you wish to let my listeners know about, uh, feel free. We'll let Tony go first, as he is, uh, as we declared, first citizen of Arkham. <laughs> first citizen Tony. Yes. So, uh, yeah, if... Uh... Thank you again for having us on. Uh, this was great. Um, just reliving the, uh, the glory days of our Arkham Horror Second Edition, um, and just you know re remembering the game. Uh, now I've got the strong urge to play it, so we're gonna have to figure that out at some point <laughs> soon. But uh, yes, yeah, no. Um, if uh, any of you are interested, uh, I do uh, have a YouTube channel, uh, which I do with three other uh, gentlemen. Um, we're putting up uh, let's plays and things like that of games that we really enjoy. So if you're interested, uh, we're called Breaking the Stream. So definitely check us out on YouTube. Drop us a like, uh, subscribe, um, and check out some of our content as well. So we're uh, we're a growing channel, and we're we're looking forward to uh, to seeing some new faces uh, into our streams. So excellent, and Ken. And before I make my terrible plug, Justin, how many total investigators are there in all of the expansions of Arkham Second Ed? Uh, if my memory serves me right, fifty-two. And it can be stated that. Justin and I, and I, Tony's covered a bunch of them, but Justin and I have each played at least one successful, not just one game, but one successful game with all 52 of them. So if anybody is you know, wanting to know how many games we've actually played, that's easily over 150 games that Justin and I have played together. Like, that's just the two of us together. Um, <laughs> yes. It was a great <laughs> trick to get him to stop playing uh, Bob Jenkins because well, <laughs> we got a checklist. Let's get some new people. <laughs> I think for a while, wasn't it that uh, in that particular uh, instance was like, when are you going to use your Bob Jenkins card? Yes. Yes. It was like, oh man, I, I can Bob only play Jenkins. him once in 52 games. So when is it going to be? <laughs> No, but uh, I am. Uh, I also have a YouTube channel. It is Top Shelf Goblins. Um, I'm also streaming live uh, retro 
um, JRPGs on uh, Facebook, on, also under the uh, Top Shelf Goblins moniker. I just completed uh, recently, this is a, a, a playlist for the original Final Fantasy, um, but I did the Dawn of Souls version. Um, my Final Fantasy playthroughs I'm referring to as Final Fantasy on easy mode. Um, I'm playing the easiest possible versions of the United States releases, Final Fantasies 1, 2, and 3. Um, and I'm breaking up that with some either like Nuzlocke runs for um, Pokemon games and uh, some JRPGs that people might not have gotten to experience, um, like the Lunar uh, Eternal Blue and Lunar Silver Star, um, the original Sega CD versions, not the not the PlayStation versions. Um, but yeah, and in the future, uh, Tony and I are actually going to be collaborating on stuff for uh, Top Shelf Goblins, where we're going to be doing, uh, we're not going to be broadcasting playthroughs of Blood Bowl and some of the Games Workshop games, but we are going to do uh, recap shows of the, the fun that we have at the table. Um, more of a satirical sports center style show. So hopefully that'll be dropping before 2025. But, you know, once <laughs> we'll figure out like what the schedule looks like once uh, things clear up. There you have it. You can find both of them at their respective YouTube channels or on the Book of Faces. And again, I appreciate both of you for, for sitting down and talking about this. And we will definitely be pulling this out either digitally or physically in the very near future because now I think all of us have that nostalgia itch that we have to play at least one more game of second edition. If nothing else, just to remember what the hell was Black Goat in the Woods? <laughs> <laughs> the first game will be just pure Black Goat nothing else. Like, you know what? So again, thank you both and we will be chatting soon. Alright, so that was our talk of Arkham. I, I don't know if you heard me in there. I was the one breathing heavily in the uh, corner so mm-hmm, mm-hmm. yeah yeah contribute to that uh bgm yeah oh yeah yeah all right and well it was a long discussion but it was really nice to go through all the different expansions pick out some of our favorite moments and favorite things and then try to f- remember what the hell black goat of the woods was all about anyway you may have noticed with episode 99 that we did a review of van richten's guide uh, to Ravenloft, and we've done a couple RPG books in the recent, and we're going to mix that up a little bit more. One of the big things that Ricky and I are talking about here is kind of mixing up and formatting uh, a month into, we're going to get an RPG review in it, a couple board game reviews, and interviews when we can land guests. Yeah, and hopefully uh, you'll start hearing from me again. Things are Soon. hopefully going back to normal. Start seeing the, uh, the light at the end of the tunnel. Indeed. So. And then you know more and more and more more games uh will be coming out <laughs> we might have a little bit of a lull so um, i know one of the big plans is uh with the board games have tried to do you know some new content and like the new hotness as well as like some throwback episodes like we've been doing to the arkham files or other games that have been around that you know maybe bust dust some of that dust off and talk about them again if we really get desperate ricky will uh go to goodwill and find whatever is on the shelf and talk about it for an hour well, you'd actually be surprised. I have a few of them that I uh, that I picked up. I am not surprised. I would love to have throwback series of because these are some very bizarre games that I found. Is it Team HB Ninja Turtles, the board game from uh, the cartoon? No, uh, Home Improvement, the board game. Oh. I've also found a beer run game. I found I found quite a few little odds and ends. That All are right. Terrible, terrible games, and they were just made to. To, you know, cash in on either uh, IP or that someone was dumb enough like me to buy them. Well, hopefully you didn't pay sticker price for them. 
But if you <laughs> did, well, they got you. <laughs> As always, uh, from the bottom of our hearts to you, thank you for listening. It's been 100 episodes, and here's to another 100. Here's to another 100. Also, make sure to follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, YouTube. We're going to make sure to keep bringing you stuff every week. It's going to uh, only grow from here, which is fantastic. Congratulations mm-hmm. to you, Justin, on 100. Congratulations to us. Uh, yes, it's, sir. It's been a fun uh, fun few years here. Yes, and two further years. So until next time, happy gaming. Happy gaming. to Tabletop Arcanum, produced by Justin Taylor. This episode was hosted by Justin Taylor and Richard Geese. Mixing and editing by Richard Geese. Original theme by Paul Moore and Isaac Gilbert. Check the description for this episode's featured background music. You can follow us on most social media platforms. Be sure to like, subscribe, and follow. And leave us a review if you would. As always, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.